Section 26 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13. The Greek Empire and the Ottoman Turks, Part 2. Europe was saved for the time, and it was nearly half a century before danger from the Turks again became really acute. It was their renewed attacks which led John VI to undertake his unpopular journey to Italy in search of union and support. His hope of a combined effort by Europe on his behalf was, as we have already seen, disappointed. But Christianity produced two other champions whose efforts shed some glory on the declining cause of the Eastern Empire. John Hunyadi, governor of Transylvania, called the White Knight of Wallachia, headed Hungarian resistance against the Turks, and won over them a series of victories on the Danube. After the Council of Florence, a Christian army recruited from various nations put itself under the command of Hunyadi, who was also accompanied by Ladislaus, the king of Poland and Hungary, and by Cesarini, the cardinal who had done much good work at the Council of Baal. This force marched through Bulgaria and captured Varna, where they were attacked by the Turks and prepared to give battle. Here again the Christians failed from overhaste and from contempt of the enemy. Hunyadi, who knew well the Turks and their tactics, had strictly enjoined Ladislaus to maintain his position and not to be induced to advance on an attack. His advice was in vain, for during his absence the king, brave but too impulsive, was urged by some of his followers to break his command, lest the fame of the battle should belong to the white knight alone. Hunyadi, returning from a successful attack on his own side, hastened to the rescue of Ladislaus, who was in the thick of the fight, and struggling with the famous Janissaries themselves. The mistake was irremediable, the king himself paid for it with his life, the Christians were forced to retire, and Cardinal Cesarini was also slain, either in the battle or the retreat. Another opponent of the Turks was an Albanian prince, George Kastriat, known to history as Skanderbeg, a contraction of Iskandarbe, or the Lord Alexander, a title given to him by the Turks. When a boy, he had been delivered as a hostage to the Sultan, who brought him up as a Moslem and treated him with the greatest favor and distinction. Apparently, the youth retained in secret the Christian faith and planned to escape on the earliest opportunity. His method of doing so was marked by unscrupulousness as well as boldness. Whilst actually occupying a post of authority in the Turkish army, he seized the occasion of confusion after a defeat to force the commander at the point of the scimitar to sign a document handing over to him the command of a Turkish fortress on the frontier of Albania. Armed with this, he deceived the Turkish governor, took possession, and admitted a force of Albanians in the night who murdered the garrison. Then, throwing off the mask, he put himself openly at the head of revolt in his native country. The rest of his life was spent in rescuing Albania and harassing the Turks, but his strength was not sufficient to divert the Sultan from his one great object, the establishment of Mussulman rule in Christian Constantinople. 
The final siege of the Greek capital was begun by the Sultan Mohammed II in the spring of 1453. Constantine, son of John VI, was the last Christian emperor of the East. His possessions by this time had been reduced to Constantinople itself, with a strip of land about 100 miles in length behind it and about half the peninsula of the Morea. The people over whom he ruled were demoralized by a long period of losses and disaster, and for his defense he was largely dependent on ships and men from Genoa and Venice, which were placed under the command of the famous Genoese soldier John Justiniani. Both sides were busy all through the winter of 1452 in making their preparations. The city of Constantinople formed a rough triangle, its base to landward, and its two sides bounded by the Golden Horn on the north and the Sea of Marmara on the south. On the other side of the Golden Horn lay the Genoese settlement of Pera or Galata. Walls completely surrounded the town, while across the mouth of the Golden Horn a boom guarded the harbor against the entrance of hostile ships. On the landward side, the chief seat of danger, the walls were triple. The inner wall, forty feet in height, had higher towers at regular distances. Below that, at an interval of about fifty feet, lay the second wall, similar but smaller, and in front of all a sort of breastwork guarded in its turn by a wide ditch. Several gates led from without into the city, besides which there were smaller military gates, leading into the different enclosures between the walls to allow soldiers to pass into them. The defenders were too few in number to guard all these three outworks, so it was decided to meet the enemy at the second wall, as the inner wall, which should have been the most defensible, was not in perfect repair. In the post of greatest danger near this wall was stationed the choicest troops under Justiniani himself and the Emperor Constantine, while the Admiral with his fleet stayed near the boom across the harbor. The Emperor's forces have been estimated at about 8,000. Mohammed had at least 150,000 with which to invest the city, and he had collected all the Turkish vessels from the surrounding seas. Sailing ships and longboats rowed by forty or fifty oarsmen, which he hoped to find even more useful than his land forces. All along the landward wall the mass of the Turkish troops were stationed. Before them they constructed a ditch and palisade, that they might be protected whilst firing on the besieged. A further force was situated behind Galata on the north of the Golden Horn. The chief feature of Mohammed's army was undoubtedly the cannon, which were to prove the insufficiency of medieval walls to meet new-fashioned methods of attack. These huge guns, however, were still of a very unwieldy nature. They were not on wheels, but had to be embedded in the ground and fired always in the same direction. They threw huge stone balls, which did enormous damage, but as a rule could not be fired more than seven times a day. One monster cannon took sixty oxen to drag it, and two hundred men to march beside to keep it in place, whilst laborers had to go on before to prepare the roads for its passing and to strengthen the bridges. 
From a military point of view, the siege of Constantinople marks an interesting transition between the old and new methods. For weapons of every kind were employed, both ancient and modern, not only gunpowder and cannon, but longbows, wooden shields, lances, and catapults. The first attempts made by the Turks to assault the city and force the boom were failures. On the sea, indeed, their opponents won a signal success which helped to raise their spirits. Four Genoese vessels bringing provisions to the city were set upon by the mass of the Turkish fleet just outside the Golden Horn, where both armies could watch the combat, the sultan from the other side of the walls of Galata. The Christian ships had guarded against all dangers, and from their superior height were able to fling stones and missiles on the lower-built Turkish vessels. In vain the sultan rode to the sea until his long robe swept the water, calling forth impotent curses and useless advice to his admiral. Suddenly, after a dead calm, a favorable wind arose which carried the victorious Italian vessels safely under the protecting walls of the town. In the night they were towed over the boom, whilst the Christians made as much noise as possible with trumpets to pretend they were in huge force, so that the Turkish fleet might expect an attack and remain on the defensive. Mohammed answered by a true tour de force. If he could not cross the boom, he would reach the Golden Horn in some other way. Behind the walls of Galata he constructed a tramway of rollers and greased logs, stretching right across the little peninsula from the Bosphorus to the harbor, a distance of about a mile, and over this, in a single night, eighty ships were hauled by ropes and pulleys and oxen. Strange indeed must have been the spectacle. All the vessels were fitted out as though on sea. Sails were unfurled, the rowers kept time with their oars, and shouting and music accompanied this long voyage on dry land, and cheered up the spirits of the men. The Christians were horrified by the unexpected appearance of Turkish ships in their harbor, and were forced to place stronger garrisons than before to guard the seaward wall. Nevertheless, the defense was stout, and renewed assaults on walls and boom were again a failure. Even attempts to undermine the city were rendered difficult by the rocky nature of the ground. Again Mohammed planned an unpleasant surprise for the Christians. In a single night, a huge wooden tower was constructed, so tall as to overlook the outer walls and to render it possible to fling scaling ladders across onto it, whilst under its protection the besiegers could work at filling up the ditch in preparation for a general attack. The emperor's forces worked hard on their side, all night they toiled at repairing the damages done by this machine on their defences, and succeeded at last in blowing up the turret itself by barrels of gunpowder placed in the ditch. Another astonishing piece of work, which the sultan carried through in an incredibly short space of time, was the construction of a bridge across the upper portion of the Golden Horn to join the two divisions of his forces. This was made with over a thousand wine-barrels, fastened together by ropes and covered with beams and planks, so that five soldiers could walk abreast on it. Pontoons also could be attached to it, bearing cannon, which could be used thus with a greater effect against the harbour wall. 
For seven weeks the struggle had been continuing, and within the city, party and race dissensions were adding enormously to the difficulties of the defense. The Greeks themselves were divided between those who looked for help to the West and those who hated any idea of the Union. Italians were disliked by the Greeks, who considered them as rivals in trade, and the Italians themselves were split up into Venetians and Genoese, bitter enemies of long standing. One man, however, commanded universal admiration and was obeyed by all parties alike. Justiniani more than justified the trust that had been placed in him and worked ably and incessantly against the constant assaults of the foe. When the walls were battered down, he constructed a stockade of sticks and stones and earth, or anything that could be got together, covered with skins to protect it from fire. But courage and resource were alike unavailing against the overwhelming numbers of the enemy, and Europe did not raise a finger to help the final struggle of the Eastern Empire. Toward the end of May, the Sultan determined to attack the city on all sides at once, and thus to reap the full advantage of his superior numbers. Through the camp went the news of his promise to the soldiers, three days unhindered plunder to every man in the army, an inducement to valor fully appreciated by his troops. Within the city all felt the crisis was approaching, and the emperor urged his followers to one more heroic effort. Do not lose heart, he said, but comfort yourself with bright hopes, because though few in number you are skilled in warfare, strong, brave, and noble, and proved in valor. On the 28th of May, the last Christian service was held in the great church of St. Sophia, which was crowded with all who could be spared from the defenses. The emperor and his followers partook of the sacrament, and the solemn ceremony over, all went to their posts. On May the 29th, shortly after midnight, the general assault began. The defenses were still strong, and the defenders were determined. Again and again the besiegers hurled themselves against the stockade, again and again they were beaten off. It seemed as though the city might still be saved, when two disastrous accidents decided the fate of the day. One small gate leading to the outer enclosure had been forgotten. It was found unguarded by the enemy, and a body of Turks appeared unexpectedly amongst the defending garrison, and pressing into the city itself, hoisted the Turkish flag on some of the turrets. Worse than this, however, was the withdrawal of Justiniani. Wounded mortally as it proved later, he left his post and made his way to his own ship near the harbor on which he died three days later. His disappearance was the signal for total demoralization and despair. In vain, Constantine endeavored to rally the men and continue the defense of the stockade. The Janissaries forced their way through, and the emperor, plunging into the thick of the fight, died in one last gallant attempt to keep back the inrush of the foe. By sunrise all resistance was ended, and the city was given over to the terrible three days of plunder which Mohammed had promised. After these the sultan himself made solemn entry into the city, and in St. Sophia, now a Mohammedan mosque, the faith of the prophet was now proclaimed. 
The fall of Constantinople marks the close of our period and an epoch in the world's history. The Eastern Empire disappeared and Turkey was established as a European state. Europe was aghast at the event she had done so little to prevent, but indirectly she was to reap good results from the immediate evil. It is not true that the fall of Constantinople introduced the study of Greek in the West. Scholars, especially in Italy, were already reading and teaching the language and literature of Greece, but after 1453 the number of fugitives increased greatly, and amongst these fugitives came scholars who quickly rose to distinction in the West. The study of Greek became both more systematic and more widespread, and helped the development of freedom of thought and the breach with old superstitions and old teaching. On the Turks themselves the result of this conquest was to make them less nomadic and more agricultural. Once established in Europe, they extended their conquests westward and became a power whose influence was to be important throughout the whole later history of the continent. End of section 26 Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, November 2017. End of The End of the Middle Age, 1273 to 1453 by Eleanor Constance Lodge.